Hey folks, my name's Brett and I'm one of the hosts of Skeleton House, an audio-only Let's Play podcast where my two friends Jess... What is happening? Oh my god! And Steve... Even he looks spooked. ...play through video games and I edit them, add context, and act as your eyeballs. Also, we have a cat. Come check us out at skeletonhouse.buzzsprout.com or look up Skeleton House on your favorite podcast app. Or your least favorite podcast app. I'm not here to tell you how to live your life. My name is Chris Carroll and this is Comic Zombie. I freeze. I'm Batman. I am the Lord of the Jolino, bitch! Some motherfuckers are always trying to ice skate a wheel. Hey there, everyone. Chris here, solo today. Eric is busy getting a Jared Leto tattoo lasered off of his butt. He'll be back next time. I want to invite you to take a trip down memory lane with me. To a time when I was a child and many of you weren't yet born, and dinosaurs and parachute pants ruled the land. We're going back 30 years, which seems impossible, but here we are, to a simpler time, a better time, a more wholesome time, to talk about when a rage monster beat the world's greatest hero to death in front of his loved ones. Ah, good times. Obviously, we're going early 90s to continue from our last solo episodes, in which I discussed the awesomely horrible Spider-Man Maximum Carnage and the horribly awesome X-Men Executioner's Song. So grab some Dunkaroos, put on your best hypercolor t-shirt, grab some Crystal Pepsi, put down your pogs and slap bracelets, and put on your nostalgia goggles for the biggest 90s comic book story event of them all, the death and return of Superman. As always, before we get into the, the meat and potatoes of this particular story, uh, there is, of course, a lot of context that needs to be provided because, again... It is the early 1990s superhero comic books, and everything is bananas. Man of Steel has proven to be as vulnerable as the mere mortals who've looked up to him for more than half a century. Superman died Wednesday. East Greg Agnew reports on a world without the first superhero. I'm saddened and disappointed by it. I feel like the uh, what they're going to do now is probably uh, bring him back in a sort of like a um, more modern, a little less uh, interesting version. That's a terrible thing. Superman meets his demise at the hands of supervillain Doomsday in the 75th edition of the popular DC comic. To begin with, the death of Superman was originally not going to be the death of Superman. Uh, the big Superman summer event that had been planned was going to be the wedding of Clark Kent and Lois Lane. Unfortunately, at the time, there was a show on air called The Adventures of Lois and Clark, a regrettable show starring Dean Cain as Superman and Terry Hatcher as Lois Lane. Uh, the executives at Warner Brothers informed the Superman comic book team that the show wished to marry Lois and Clark themselves in a couple of seasons and asked that the comic book team delay their story until they could all kind of sync up and do them at the same time. So that meant they had to wait. Jerry Ordway, who's been a longtime uh, comic book artist and um, creator, famously just kind of would always say when they'd get to a roadblock in the story planning process, ah, let's just kill him, kind of jokingly. And when he said at this time, group editor Mike Carlin uh, responded with, and then what happens? And that began the conversation for what became the death of Superman. 
there are a lot of kind of classic Superman characters that are in this story that you may not really recognize them in the incarnations you see here. Supergirl, for instance, uh, when you first see her, looks to be Supergirl, the one you're familiar with, you know, Superman's cousin, the blonde-haired uh, Kryptonian. Not such the case here. Uh, in the early 90s, the there was no cousin from Krypton. Uh, essentially, she was like a shape-shifting alien who chose to make herself look like Superman because she she was inspired by him. You'll find her in this story palling around with Lex Luthor. Now, Lex Luthor is not the Lex Luthor you're expecting. Uh, the bald, kind of mad scientist slash billionaire businessman um, was kind of still developing. And in this case, uh, this... <laughs> They call him like Lex Luthor II, and he's got a huge mane of red hair and a red beard, and he's actually the Lex Luthor we're all familiar with, who faked his own death and put his consciousness into a clone body, a younger one naturally, uh, and claims to be the son of Lex Luthor. Because comic books. <laughs> Weirdly enough, Lex Luthor is not really that involved in this story, other than they had to put him in because it's Superman's death and there's Lex Luthor. Uh, but he doesn't really do a whole heck of a lot that we see here. Now, we find out years later that he had some manipulation going on that we weren't aware of, but not really related to the death of Superman, more just to kind of things going on around it. Uh, when we get to the event, uh, Clark's parents are both still alive. And depending on when you read Superman comics, one or both of them are usually dead. Uh, in this case, they are alive. And he is, of course, engaged to Lois, or he's with Lois long-term, a very serious relationship kind of thing. It's the early 90s, and it's, you know, 1992. The big thing in comic books is image comics, really. Like, all the, the, the big seven guys from Marvel left and formed their own independent comic studio, and they were, uh, comic publisher, excuse me, and they were doing massive numbers and drawing a lot of the audience that would traditionally just go to Marvel and DC. So both Marvel and DC countered by creating these massive world shakeup events just to try to bring eyes to their books. You know, you had, uh, they basically did the death of Superman with like every major character where they replaced him with other people. You know, you had Batman and Nightfall, you had um, Emerald Dawn and Green Lantern, you had, I think, Terminal Velocity and The Flash. Wonder Woman was replaced by, a, um, oh God, forgive me, the redheaded one that she can't stand, I forget her name, Artemis, I think, something like that. Uh, but they kept. They would just take their major heroes out of commission for a while and kind of remind you why you like them and bring them back. But in the meantime, they were adding more characters to their their library. And it was actually a pretty fun time to read comics. You could just kind of see it was all aping the death of Superman. One of the reasons for that is the hype around this thing was absolutely insane. All right, this is pre-internet, you know, at least pre-common usage of the internet. And... It was on television. I mean, they were talking about it on, like, again, this the date things, but the Arsenio Hall show, Entertainment Tonight. Uh, they were talking about it on uh, Letterman. I mean, Saturday Night Live made a reference to it. It was on, like, Tom Brokaw. Everybody that had any kind of media presence at one point or another brought up the death of Superman. And you didn't really see that in comic books prior to the death of Superman, ever. I mean, ever. Unless it was something very controversial happening. And now every now and then you'll get something big. Uh, but nothing comes close to this. I mean, it was insane. The creators were, were kind of treated like rock stars. Like they'd go for signings and there'd be lines blocks deep. 
they were when people really realized that they were actually going to do this uh, because keep in mind they actually announced the death of Superman and the story is called the death of Superman quite a while before the story actually came out usually they solicit stories about three months in advance to retailers now it's become commonplace to solicit those to retailers and readers so you usually know three months ahead of time like who's going to be writing and drawing the comic you're going to be buying or maybe not buying depending on the case what the tease is like what the general story uh, they're trying to sell you on is things like that you kind of got a little bit of that sometimes back then, but but not much. But this was they, the cat was out of the bag, and they knew it, so they just rolled with it. And it actually ends up helping the tension of the story uh, because by the time the first issues of Doomsday showing up came out, it was everyone kind of knew where it was going, and so it was just freaking torture waiting week to week for these books to come out. Um, I mean, just ridiculous. And uh, Superman at the time had four titles. There was uh, Action Comics, which was the very first DC comic, Superman, The Man of Steel, and The Adventures of Superman. And each one of them would come out generally once a week. Like, you know, Superman would come out one week and Action the next, et cetera, et cetera. And the way that the Superman books at the time were run, those titles kind of bled into each other. So they had a little triangle on the cover with a number in it. And so if you were buying all four of the books, you would just read them in the order of those little triangle numbers and you got like the overarching story from all angles. Whereas if you're just reading one book, you you'll just enjoy that one book and you're fine. So it kind of helped out that they had been in the mode of picking the baton up from each other, the creators, one at a time, uh, leading into this story, because that's exactly what they just continued to do, not only in the Doomsday story and the Death story, uh, but a little bit less stricter, but w during the reign of Superman, they kind of go their own ways a little bit and then come back towards the end of that and then right on to the return. So some really great creators, really, really great work. I mean, you had really some excellent Roger Stern, Jerry Ordway, Carl Kiesel, Tom Grummet, Louis Simonson, Dan Jurgens. Dan Jurgens does the heavy lifting on the, the main Superman title. Uh, and he's the one that wrote and drew Superman issue 75, which is the one that came in the black bag and uh, with the bloody S on it that everybody had like eight copies of and was the actual death of Superman. When it came time to do the actual deed, to kill the unkillable, to do the impossible, to kill the Man of Steel... Who's it going to be? You know, Parasite, Mr. Mixie's Pitalik, the Toy Man. He doesn't have the greatest villains in the world necessarily, but, you know, Lex Luthor, there's some people, Darkseid easily probably could have done it. But I, they felt that a new character with mystery surrounding them maybe carried a little bit more oomph and, of course, would sell more merchandise. And they weren't wrong. Doomsday has been one of the most popular DC characters of the last 30 years, and he rarely shows up and has almost no character to him at all. It's all based solely on the rep he earned from this story. But Doomsday, they don't have to do much with because there's not much to him. He's a giant bone-spurred monster. He seems kind of mindless. He, he's drawn to destruction and violence. So he's kind of like everything Superman isn't down with, personified. what hole you crawled out of or where you came from but I'm sending you back
And he really, really, I think at least, was a great foil for this story. Now, I know a lot of people would argue that, you know, after all this time, Superman dies, it should be like Lex Luthor or Zod or somebody like that that actually does the deed. And I can't necessarily disagree. Why, why use somebody who's already around and already popular when you can create a new character that's going to instantly sell a bunch of stuff, you know? So uh, Doomsday basically was a stony, bony version of the Hulk here to ruin Superman's day. And he does that and then some. And of course, there was a whole parade of copycats afterwards, like I mentioned, uh, beginning with Bane, who very different, but similar. Uh, Marvel and DC and, and all these characters would create the ultimate mega badass to come in and like just jack up our heroes' lives, all based off of this story. The good news is Superman may be facing an unkillable killing machine, but he's not alone. He has his friends, the Justice League, to back him up. Unfortunately for Clark Kent, that is not necessarily the Justice League you're used to seeing. Absent are the likes of Wonder Woman, Batman, The Flash, The Green Lantern, any Green Lantern, hell, Hawkman, Black Canary, Firestorm, nowhere to be found. Here we've got Fire and Ice, Booster Gold, The Blue Beetle, the Ted Cord version, Guy Gardner, when he was using one of Sinestro's old yellow rings and not really nearly as powerful as the Green Lantern or even Red Lantern Guy Gardner that we've come to know and love and hate all these years later. This is the bowl-cut leather jacket Guy Gardner. There's also Maxima, who is, um, she's a weird one. She's basically like Magneto and a telepath mixed together, sort of. Um, and she's pretty formidable, but she doesn't do much here. And the last character on the team is called Bloodwind. Keep in mind, it's the early 90s. Who we find out later is actually the Martian Manhunter in some backwards-ass nonsense rationale. But he was suppressing some of his abilities and not being the Martian Manhunter because he had... Get, was fully committed to this blood win. It just makes my brain bleed talking about it. Point is, he's not as awesome as he usually is uh, and really could have been useful in this fight, but instead just gets punked out and knocked into fire, which is his big weakness, like, right away. So, we have a very different Justice League, and I'm not sure the main kind of traditional Justice League would have made much of a difference, but I can tell you for sure that this one does not. Now, when you think superhero comic book fights, and you think about some of the more one-sided fights you've seen, usually, for me at least, you see things like Thor, or the Hulk, or Superman, or Green Lantern squaring off against some like hopelessly inept villain, or you know, Spider-Man versus the Shocker kind of thing like that. But for me, it's Doomsday wiping the floor with this version of the Justice League. I mean, sweet Moses, he beats the living bejesus out of them uh, until Superman shows up and kind of basically chases him off uh, and, and then follows suit, of course. But uh, he is just literally with one hand bound behind his back. He is just one-shotting Bloodwind slash Martian Manhunter, uh, Booster Gold, Blue Beetle, Fire, Ice, Guy Gardner. I mean, he is just beating the shit out of them. It is intense. And it's it's in one issue, he completely decimates the league, hospitalizes like half of them, and everyone else is out of commission. Um, it, it just really kind of shows how how in it Superman is about to be, how up to his neck in it he's about to be, because the Justice League stood absolutely no chance against this thing. 
So now they have to turn to their ace in the hole, their big gun, you know, the blue boy scout and just pray to all the gods that are listening that he can do something about this. And to be honest, from the early stages of the fight, it really doesn't look like he has much of a chance. And this continues to uh, escalate the tension. You know, again, we're only at this point four issues away from the death of the greatest superhero of all time. And so every issue is upping the tension, upping the 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 anxiety of just, I don't want to see this happen, but like the story is just building and building and building. And one of the incredible ways they, they pulled off uh, another little touch of, of upping the, the tension without really even you being consciously aware of it necessarily is the last four issues. Each one of them has a shrinking panel count per page. Now, what I mean by that is in part one of the four-part battle, each page of the issue has four panels. So when you get to the next issue, part two, each page has three panels. Part three has two panels per page, culminating in Superman number 75, in which the Man of Steel and Doomsday have their final fight, where each page is a incredibly detailed, full splash page panel drawing. So really the book is only 20-something panels long. But each one is like a poster. I mean, it's really awesome. And uh, it, it just shows how like, the story is getting bigger and bigger. And, and it's, as Doomsday gets closer and closer to the heart of Metropolis. And just the body count is rising. And Superman just is running out of time and options. And it's just it's an excellent tool. Uh, and just kudos to the team for pulling that off. Because that's one of my favorite little uh, tricks they used in the entire story. So the actual fight with Superman and Doomsday is pretty brutal. I mean, Superman throws everything he has at this guy. And it's like, not only does it not work, but it doesn't really seem to be having all that much effect. In the last chapter in the story, Superman is throwing everything he has into every last punch. Every punch he throws is meant to just take this thing's head off. Every blow that connects is shattering windows for blocks. It's rupturing gas lines under the ground. It's causing earthquakes, causing buildings to start to crumble. I mean, it's crazy. And finally, when he has time to say one last goodbye to Lois Lane before throwing himself at this monster one more time, each of them throws, presumably, everything they have into that last punch. They both connect. Doomsday falls to the ground, defeated and dead presumably. Clark, Superman, has just enough time lying back into the rubble of the streets with paramedics, firefighters, bystanders, some of the Justice League that showed up to try to help too little too late. They watch as he dies in Lois Lane's arms after learning that he finally stopped Doomsday. The end. (laughs) Holy shit! It still stands up today, I gotta say. Like, a lot of this story, as in all things, from the early 90s and comic books particularly, doesn't necessarily age all that well. The fight sequences with Doomsday, just the the actual execution of the story, uh, I mean, I give them, for what's basically just a four-issue fight, I mean, it's A++. Great job. Steel has met his match in a battle to defend Metropolis, and from New York to Los Angeles, faithful readers are snapping up the final Doomsday issue, even though many are skeptical about Superman's demise. I think he'll come back as the same. 
It just uh, they'll make up a story how he can come back, but he'll come back. He'll come back souped up. So, you know, they souped up Superman. That, that's what it is. So, you've just murdered your mascot, your Mickey Mouse, your Spider-Man. I mean, it's Superman, for God's sake. He's dead. So what do you do? You've just removed four titles from your publishing line, presumably. So what's the plan? Well, DC decided for a couple of months they weren't going to publish any Superman comics. They released a Daily Planet special edition, kind of uh, articles from around the DC universe and photographs and everything like that from different characters, you know, just giving tribute to Superman. And it came with a black armband with a red bloody S on it. I don't actually know what, I don't remember if the S was bloody or not, but it was a, a black armband with a red S. And people were wear, actually wearing these things, like out in public and stuff like that. And the characters in the books were wearing them too. It was crazy. So they decided to do a couple months of a, a little miniseries, uh, essentially. Um, I believe it's actually in the individual Superman titles, but it's called Funeral for a Friend. And it just kind of shows like what what's happening without Superman around. Uh, Supergirl, again, working for Lex Luthor, trying her best to protect the city, uh, as are some of the more street-level heroes. Special crimes units and everything like that that they have uh, are trying to, you know, do their best to keep the city safe and everything like that uh, in Superman's absence. Uh, some of the Justice League members loan their, I guess, talents to the city um, in the days following his death just to kind of keep the peace. And it just seems like everyone's kind of saying goodbye. Then we get to... Adventures of Superman, issue 500. Right before this story, Clark's father, Pa Kent, has a heart attack. And uh, he gets to the hospital, and they're trying to save him. And you see, like, his spirit journey into the afterlife, where he's looking for Clark. And he kind of finds him. And this is weird. It's a really weird issue. But he finds Clark, who thinks he's in, like, a Kryptonian honor procession, going towards, like, their version of Valhalla, I suppose. And it turns out it's not that at all. It's actually one of the uh, DC Comics, like, demons. And I think it's Necron or something. like It's not Necron, but somebody like that. And uh, Jonathan Kent convinces Clark that, you know, things aren't what they seem to be. And, and Clark helps push Jonathan's spirit, like, back to his body. And it seems like Clark had kind of the same experience. And we don't see any of this from Clark's perspective, just from Jonathan's. And when he wakes up, he says, Clark is back. And then that issue ends with the tomb of Superman um, being revealed to be empty. So what we didn't know at the time is that this actually was the return of Superman in some ways. Um, there had been another fake out with his body being stolen before, and it's just the whole thing. But basically... The body of Superman was stolen by a Kryptonian being from way back in the day called the Eradicator, who was thought defeated. But when Kal-El died, it, the last son of Krypton dying, like, kind of uh, uh, set off one of his alarms. I, I don't remember exactly how it worked, but basically he woke up. And he stole Superman's body and took it to the Fortress of Solitude and put it into a, uh, like, a solar matrix. It's basically like an, a, a giant, like, egg-like chamber that pulls in solar energy from, like, every source the Fortress has and feeds it into this chamber um, to try to kind of, like, basically, like, kind of hold his life energies in place and reconstitute. Like, ba basically, Clark was dead. And this machine is trying to, like, restart 
his brain and vital organs and everything like that. And it ends up working. It just takes time. Um, but we don't know any of that yet. We learn all that much later. Right now, it just looks like Superman's body is gone. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean that he's really back? Does that mean somebody stole his body again? Like, what's going on? Was it Lex Luthor? What's happening? Well, we get our answer sort of um, at least four versions of it when Superman shows back up. Kind of. We're introduced to not one, not two, but four possible Superman. Uh, each one is, is supposed to carry like their own book and be like a replacement Superman. Not all of them are intended to make the readers think they're actually Superman returned to life. For instance, there's John Henry Irons, Steel, who stars in the book Man of Steel. Now, nobody thinks this is Clark Kent back. We saw Clark save John Henry Irons during the fight with Doomsday. So there's no question that this dude is not Superman. However... He puts a giant S on his chest for his suit of armor and wears a giant red cape and tries to do right in Superman's name and in his honor. So, you know, he's basically like a, a sidekick almost, like the way the DC Legacy characters do, just a guy that was never really a sidekick. He just decided to do what he could. Uh, the other one is Superboy, or don't call me Superboy, who uh, is ends up becoming, down the line, Connor Kent, who uh, is a very popular... DC Comics character. Uh, we learn much, much, much later in the excellent Jeff Johns, Mike McCone Teen Titans that while we know that Connor was cloned from Superman, he also, they couldn't just clone Superman. Otherwise, there'd be 50 clones of Superman. So they figured out one way to do it was to mix the Kryptonian DNA they had with human DNA and make like a hybrid. Now, unfortunately for Connor, the human DNA they used was Lex Luthor's. Now, again, he did not know this at this point. None of us know this at this point. Right now, he's just, don't call me Superboy. So, it's possible this is like a clone. I mean, it is a clone of Superman. So, he's not Superman back to life, but in a way, he's Superman back to life. He's still a young teenager, so it's a little weird to see uh, a teenager set firmly in the early 1990s, leather jacket and all. Uh, as Superman, but his, he's actually one of the more entertaining characters, maybe the most entertaining character in the crossover. And, uh, you know, it shows because, like Steel, he's stuck around for quite a long time and is still a character in DC Comics today. The other one uh, is the kind of darker Superman. He's got these big shades on. He wears a similar costume to Kal-El, but a little bit different. And he has, like, energy powers. We learn later this is the Eradicator. His experience of dying himself kind of made him a little Looney Tunes. And uh, when he kind of woke back up and went to the Fortress of Solitude, he was exposed to, like, all the stuff that was going on. And I guess it messed with his brain and made him think that he was Superman. Thankfully, he did what he did because he ended up bringing Superman back to life. But um, him flying around pretending to be Superman didn't really do a whole lot of favors for anybody um, other than the fact that he was maybe my personal favorite of the four candidates when it was happening. The fourth and final candidate as possible Superman is the cyborg, don't call me Terminator, Superman. Uh, it looks very much like a Terminator exoskeleton from the, the, the film franchise with like a quarter of Superman's face on it and his costume. He seems like the real deal. He claims that his body was horribly damaged in the Battle of Doomsday, which makes sense, and that the 
machines and assistants he has at his fortress did what they could when they were reviving him and resurrecting him, but that a lot of the physical damage was too severe and they had to be, you know, very judicious in replacing parts of his body with robotics. Now, as a reader, as a kid, I really hoped this was not the real deal. Um, I just didn't trust him from the get-go. And I don't think you're supposed to because, again, the robotic imagery is very evocative of the Terminator, which Terminator 2 had already been released at this point. Everybody knew what the Terminator looked like. And I think that was done on purpose to make it. I don't know how much I trust this this dude. And that instinct was on point because, as we'll learn later, he is not trustworthy at all. But at first, he... He seems like he could be the real guy. Like, he's got Lois Lane almost convinced that he's the real deal. He's he's convinced the president of the United States. He saved the president of the United States. He's done all these really great heroic things. Of course, we find out later he was manipulating events for those events to occur so that he could show up and stop them. But it seemed like he was on the up and up. So we have four guys, each with very different personalities, each very different motivations, each doing very different things. And they're kind of like one by one winning over parts of the DC universe. Uh, like Lois Lane is totally cool with, with Steel. Um, and, and she's a little curious about Superboy, but just knows like, you know, she, that's not where her story is leading her. And by the end of like her little arc, she's pretty convinced that this dude is Superman back to life. But he claims that a lot of his, his memory was damaged. So he remembers parts of of their life together, but not the thing. So not, not like their life together, you know? He doesn't really remember Clark. You know, again, it looks like we're moving past having Clark Kent ever be Superman again at this point. Even though it's only been a couple months, it feels like forever. We kind of move forward. Each Superman gets their own story arcs that just seem to kind of just be setting up things like the Eradicator has a fight with Guy Gardner, and after brutalizing some criminals and beating the living shit out of Guy, Guy kind of endorses him in public as like the one true Superman. Of course, this pisses off Superboy and the Cyborg Superman. Steel doesn't give a shit. Uh, Steel's fighting a bunch of gun runners and stuff like that. Um, Superboy's tied up with Lex Luthor and this bidding war with, with like uh, Lex's TV channel and this other, the other TV channel that Superboy's kind of been affiliated with. And it's it's entertaining. The art's great by Tom Grummet. It's really fun. The character's cool. And then the Cyborg Superman, again, is just going about proving to everybody or at least convincing everybody that he's the real deal. Then things take a turn. <laughs> it is revealed that the cyborg Superman is not the real deal. He's not even uh, a hero. He is, in fact, an old classic Superman villain that hadn't been seen for some time by the name of Hank Henshaw. And this is his revenge on Superman. Now, who is Hank Henshaw, you might ask? And I would say, excellent question, true believer. A lot of times Marvel and DC have like uh, analogs for some of their competitors' characters. Um, you know, for instance, the Squadron Supreme in Marvel Comics is essentially the Marvel versions of the Justice League. Hank Henshaw is kind of sort of the DC Comics version of Reed Richards from the Fantastic Four. He and his friends were in a very similar situation as the way the Fantastic Four got their powers. The difference is, this is like a worst-case scenario. Each one of these powers was nightmarish and ended up in the deaths of his companions and him losing his physical body, and he can uh, project his consciousness in the machinery. He used one of Superman's decommissioned Superman robots, which sounds stupid, but he actually used to have a bunch of robots at his fortress uh, that could disguise themselves to look like Superman and go fill in for him if needed. 
And in this case, one of the old decommissioned ones was possessed by Hank Henshaw. And he kind of just modified it a little bit to make himself a little less recognizable to, to people and a little more recognizable to some and everything like that. And uh, basically is now using Superman's position and name to do all kinds of horrible shit. And we learn that he has conquered War World. War World is this giant... I mean, it's what it sounds like. It's just a giant war... It's a planet that's like uh, a weapon. And it's usually run by the giant yellow space dickhead Mongol. In this case, we see Mongol is actually kneeling to the cyborg Superman. And Henshaw has now weaponized War World, brings it down to Earth, and nukes the ever-loving shit out of Coast City. Now, if that name sounds familiar at all to some of you, that's because Coast City is the home of Hal Jordan. Hal Jordan, of course, being the Green Lantern. Now, it's a little weird to suddenly bring the Green Lantern into this story like two issues before it's over, but the destruction of Coast City is actually significant in DC Comics. Not only does it establish Hank Henshaw, Cyborg Superman, as one of the biggest mass murderers in DC Comics history, and immediately puts him on the top of, like, Superman's all-time biggest dickhead villains list, or at least near the top, Lex stole all those cakes, but it did a lot for the Green Lantern books. Uh, the destruction of Coast City led to Hal Jordan being influenced and corrupted by the fear entity Parallax, which led to him turning on the Green Lantern Corps and basically murdering the entire Green Lantern Corps and most of the Guardians. Uh, that led to the Guardian Ganthet creating a ring and giving it to the artist he found outside of a bar on Earth, Kyle Rayner, who, of course, uh, kept the Green Lantern mythos alive while Hal was dead and going through all kinds of shit. Anyway, it, it sets up decades of Green Lantern stories in this one move. I know Green Lantern has had nothing to do with this book or story until then, or until now. Uh, so, like I said, it's a little strange that he's suddenly included. But, you know, you throw Hal Jordan into a story and I'm going to enjoy it. So, uh, placement be damned, housing involvement and fight with Mongol towards the end uh, is pretty sweet. Oh, it doesn't really impact um, the super people's story at all. So, the cyborg Superman has apparently murdered the Eradicator. And then uh, he, he recruited Superboy using his manipulation of technology to make it look like the city was nuked by the eradicator um so he brings superboy in where cameras can't go and then that's when a superboy figures out what's going on and uh they try to kill him as well he's also beating the shit out of steel now uh at this point we see there's there's been this figure in the fortress that's just been like studying video and stuff. We don't we're not sure who it is, but it's pretty clear that it's it's Kal El. Uh, but it could be another fake out, so we're not really sure. Um, the figure gets into this big Kryptonian mech suit and like walks across the ocean floor from uh, I think it's the North Pole of the Fortress at, but it could be the South Pole. But he marches across the ocean floor to Metropolis and uh, comes up at this pier where. Supergirl and Steel and Superboy are kind of who survived the attack, of course, are gathered together with Lois Lane and are trying to uh, come up with a plan when this thing walks out of the ocean and like dumps this body out of it. And it's uh, a mulleted, long haired, black suited Superman who 
convinces Lois that he's the real deal just in time. Uh, he's he's not really regained any of his power yet. He's very weak. He can't fly. Um, so he borrows steals like jet boots and um, he joins the super team as they fly off to go try to stop Henshaw, who Superboy has kind of uh, in, involved everybody and told them what's going on and that they need to go stop Henshaw. When they get there, they're sneaking through War World and everything like that to try to get to Henshaw. Uh, that's when the Green Lantern gets involved and he comes in and he and Mongol have this big throwdown. Now, Mongol is actually a really serious threat. He's fought the Justice League by himself many times. Uh, so Hal Jordan is overmatched, but he ends up winning just out of sheer Hal Jordan-ness. Meanwhile, Henshaw is using his master of technology, his mastery of technology, to manipulate the actual physical structure of the building itself and his engines and everything like that uh, to attack Steel and and Clark and everything. When they get to the big final fight, uh, the Eradicator has shown up. He's not dead, and he was just really jacked up by the cyborg. And he and Clark go to try to fight Henshaw. And the room they're fighting him in is powered. By a gigantic chunk of kryptonite. Now, this doesn't really affect Henshaw at all. He looks like Superman, but he's not. He's not. He doesn't have any biology to him. He's all robotic. So the, krypton, the kryptonite does nothing to him. So wanting to be rid of Clark once and for all, he rips one of like the cables out that converts the krypton stone into gas, and that gas is then used to power the machines. So he rips the, the wiring or whatever cable out of the wall and he's spraying this crypt, kryptonite shit all over the place. And the Eradicator blocks Superman to try to protect him. And in a classic 90s comics twist of what the fuck, the uh, energy as it cascades through the Eradicator's body is changed so that when it hits Clark, it it it's, I guess, akin to solar energy. It's the... When the, the kryptonite energy hits uh, the the energy that has, was powering the Eradicator, it essentially, like, filters out the kryptonite. I, it makes no sense. But the, the Eradicator dies protecting Kal-El, which is a big deal because, as his name suggests, the Eradicator was never previously a good guy. He was, you know, all about preserving Krypton, but not in, a like, a friendly way or anything like that. So uh, it's a bit like Dr. Octopus sacrificing himself for Spider-Man. Maybe not that degree, but maybe Electro sacrificing himself for Spider-Man. Just a little unexpected and actually adds some weight to the fight. Now, what this does is it gives Clark his power back, like, full power back. And then he proceeds to beat Henshaw in about half a second. He punches a hole through his chest, again, not a person, just a machine, and then vibrates his arm at, like, an insane speed to the point where it, like, demol- like, like rips the molecules of Henshaw's body apart. Now, he's pretty certain he hasn't seen the last of Henshaw, and spoilers, we haven't. But for this story, we have. Clark is able to get his friends, and Hal Jordan uses uh, his ring to create a bubble so they can all survive the kryptonite, and uh, he goes and reunites with Lois and uh, eventually his parents. Now, when Superman died, they were left with a bit of a problem because Clark Kent wasn't around anymore, but Clark Kent is a celebrated reporter who's very public for the Daily Planet. So what do you do? Well, they just made people believe that Clark died in the battle with Doomsday and all the wreckage like a lot of people did. Well, Superman's alive again, and he wants to have his life back, so what do you do? Well, here's where it's actually kind of a good thing that Supergirl in this particular era is super fucking weird she shapeshifts into um looking like clark so when they discover that like oh look it's clark kent under all this rubble holy crap you know it's not 
Superman saves Clark Kent. So it not only saves his secret identity from anybody who's wondering, because you see Clark Kent and Superman together, but it's a reasonable explanation for why Clark Kent's been gone and suddenly he's back. So they're able to kind of reset everything back to the way it was. Uh, and the story ends with Clark and Lois going to visit his parents. Like, holy shit, we, we're back, you know? So, so... The death and return of Superman, the reign of the Superman, uh, was, of course, one of DC's most popular and, and likely profitable events they've ever done. There was so much merchandise for this story. It's crazy. And I don't just mean all the the black Superman stuff, the, the black shirts and armbands and hats and you name it. All, there was a ton of that. There were lunchboxes for the death of Superman, board games. I believe. I think there was a board game or two. Uh, at least one video game. Um, I mean, you name it, there's probably pogs for it. There was a trading card series. You, you, anything that was kind of a form of entertainment uh, or merchandise that you would find Superman on had a death of Superman of it. It was, I mean, it was just massive. And it continued to be massive for quite a while. Now, DC also didn't milk this as much as you might think they did. They did a follow-up miniseries where Superman went and found Doomsday's body that they'd like thrown out into space, and Doomsday was still alive, and they had like a rematch and all this stuff, but it wasn't anything like this. Now, this is one of the most influential comic book stories of all time, at least as far as the impact that it had on comic books. Not only did it impact DC Comics quite a lot, with the creation of a lot of new characters, and the feeling that... Nobody was safe. You know, they killed their golden goose. They can do anything to anybody, which they did. I mentioned before we had Batman's Nightfall, The Flash's Terminal Velocity, Emerald Knight uh, for, for Hal, or Emerald Dawn. I, I don't remember. I think it's Emerald Dawn. Uh, Wonder Woman had her, her thing going on. Aquaman had a bunch of crazy shit going on. They had a lot of reinvention for their characters done through death, uh, loss of power, things like that where they were replaced by another version and uh, usually a more 90s version. I'm looking at you, Azrael, Batman. Uh, and then they would bring their original version back and kind of remind everybody what they loved about them so much in the first place. Superman, of course, uh, there was a big change on Superman. The guy survived death. So obviously that was on his mind for quite a while. It's not that he's immortal necessarily. I mean, he probably couldn't pull that trick again. They made sure to point that out. Like, this plot device is only usable once in the story. So, uh, but obviously the story had a lot to do with influencing the Superman comics moving forward. It introduced Doomsday. It introduced Steel. Connor Kent Superboy. It reestablished Hank Henshaw as a Superman villain, although he's really more of a Green Lantern villain, honestly, uh, which makes sense. I don't know. You can still find a lot of these characters and, and, and reflections of this story in uh, in Superman books today. The one thing that this did, uh, it, it, two more things I want to touch on, but one thing that this did that I don't love, the effect this story had on comic book deaths. You didn't really get a lot of people dying and coming back to life all the time like you do post-death of Superman. You know, Bucky, <laughs> Gwen Stacy, all these characters, they died and they stayed dead. And uh, Norman Osborn, you know, they, they died and they stayed dead. And DC, you know, sometimes they would kill characters back in like the 40s and 50s and then bring them back years later with like little to no explanation sometimes. But I kind of forgive basically any comic made prior to the mid 60s prior to the stan lee stuff because they, you know they didn't they they weren't thinking about it like that it was like let's just get this next issue out and who cares about the dude who is the butler before alfred like you know who cares right so 
But opposed death of Superman, you have a ton of time. And they've killed everybody, says this story. I mean, every major comic book character you can think of has died at least once since the death of Superman and come back to life. Even Green freaking Arrow, Hawkeye, they've died and come back to life. Spider-Man, Wolverine, Captain America, Iron Man, Thor, Hulk, you name it, they have died and come back. Because the death of Superman broke, the, you know, let the genie out of the bottle. It broke the bottle to the point where the death is cool now, but it's all of the the story is how do you bring them back? And I don't know how much I love that. It has led to some really great stories. I'm not going to lie. I mean, you know, the superior Spider-Man, for Christ's sake, I, I got to do a whole issue on that uh, episode on that. But it would take four hours because I love it so much. I just would be talking about every issue. You know, I don't love... Some of the the fact that like because of this story they felt like they can they they needed to do something similar with like every major superhero. Sometimes it ended up with really cool stuff. Sometimes not. Uh, but it did lead to the the idea of like events, big events being needed. So, which you know, some people can't stand the kind of quote unquote event cycle where you know you'll have like an era. Marvel does it probably more than anybody, but you have like an era of your publishing line which builds to like an event which has some new status quo which builds to the next event which has a twist on that status quo which builds to the next event. And usually it's about three or four, uh, which then kind of like ends that era of their publishing line. And they then kind of come up with something new for the next thing. That all kind of can be originated back to this and like secret wars and stuff like that. So it wasn't necessarily the death of Superman, but the death of Superman knocked that up to like 11, you know? Uh, there would be no maximum carnage, nightfall, any of that stuff without the death of Superman. So for better, for worse. For me personally, since I love those big, crazy crossovers, by the way, the Avengers X-Men Eternals Judgment Day crossover is coming out right now for Marvel Comics, and it's awesome. I have not read the new Crisis story for DC yet, but I hear it's pretty good. Yeah, so Death of Superman changed everything. It changed comic book publishing for superheroes, at least. It changed Superman. It changed Green Lantern. It changed DC Comics. It changed comics. And also, it's super entertaining and to the point where it's been given uh, three animated movies. There's uh, Superman Doomsday, which is okay. And then there's the two-parter Death of Superman, Reign of the Superman, which is pretty good. And uh, then it was kind of shoehorned into... Batman versus Superman Dawn of Justice, which has the worst title ever. Um, so, I mean, it, it's very... Everyone knows Doomsday at this point, you know? Like, I, I don't know if mom and dad would know it, but anyone who's even passingly familiar with Superman is, is familiar with Doomsday. And it all ties to this. Maybe the most famous Superman story ever told. The death, reign of, and return of Superman. So that's it for today, everybody. Thank you so much for joining me for another episode of Comic Zombie. I'm sure Eric will be back next time with a Jared Leto tattoo no longer on his butt. And um, we will be discussing one of a number of things. There's a lot to talk about. We need to be get back with Zach Derby soon to do our Phase 3 of the MCU. We're going to try to get with our buddy Jimmy Lester to talk about some of the shows that... Uh, we put on the back burner a while back and never got to. So there's a whole episode to be discussed, things like the Book of Boba Fett and Peacemaker and the boys and things like that. So we'll try to get with him. And then Eric and I really want to talk about uh, these Phase 5 and Phase 6 announcements from the MCU, uh, as well as the trailer for Andor 
And of course, the huge news lately of the big shakeups over at Warner Brothers after the purchase from Discovery and uh, things like the cancellation of the Batgirl movie. And uh, will Michael Keaton's Batman even make it to the big screen at this point? We don't know. So there's a lot to talk about. And uh, we're going to try to get some of these episodes out pretty quickly for you. And I have one or two more um, solo kind of look backs at some old 90s comics I'd love to do. So we'll hope to have some more content coming your way here shortly. And hopefully we can squeeze out. Uh, at least a half dozen episodes or so before the uh, end of the year. So, don't forget to check us out over at comiczombie.net. You can also find us all over social media. You can find us at Facebook, Instagram, Discord, Twitter. Uh, don't forget Twitter. It's at comiczombie2 for some reason. Anyway, uh, please feel free to check us out. Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Discord, all that fun stuff. And uh, you can also find Eric who is conspicuously absent getting a tattoo lizard off his butthole, uh, over at uh, social media at Eric Slater, E-R-I-K-S-L-A-D-E-R, and uh, over at uh, epicfails.com. That's E-P-I-K-fails.com. Until next time, same copyright infringement time, same copyright infringement channel. This has been a presentation of the We Can Make This Work Probably Network. Follow us on Twitter at ProbablyWork for more of our questionable content. Also, we have a website called ProbablyWork.com.